0: What's going on, everybody? My name is George Khalifa. This is episode 11 of Let's Grab Coffee. I have the pleasure today of being with Chuck Garcia. Chuck is an author, executive coach, keynote speaker, and founder of Climb Leadership Consulting. He is an Amazon best selling author in multiple categories, including communication skills. His coaching is focused on public speaking, leadership development, and sales skills. He's also a 25 year veteran of Wall Street uh, with leadership positions at Bloomberg, BlackRock, and Citadel. I've linked uh, Chuck Garcia's website below, chuckgarcia.com, as well as his LinkedIn profile if you want to learn more about uh, his services and uh, his, his books, which I'm really excited actually to talk about. But before we get started, Chuck, first of all, I just want to say thank you for doing this podcast with me. Oh, you're welcome.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: I've been excited. Uh, so we actually met at a sales training seminar, we uh, Chuck did for TMX, and ever since then I was like blown away. I'm like, I, ha- I have to get this guy on my podcast. Cool. And so you know, before we sort of delve into the questions, yeah. just tell the audience who you are. Uh, how did you get to the position you are today by yourself? Yeah,
1: you bet. I'm a regular
0: guy who grew up in, in, in a,
1: a home. In, my dad was a college professor. He was a professor at the United States Military Academy, West Point. So I grew up in a world, of, a civilian world, a very scholarly world that was also meshed with the military world. And I felt that had a big impact on me because it helped me to understand how to be adaptable in a world that demands different things from different people at different times in their lives. And I say that because when you grow up in a military environment, you understand strategy, tactics, and operations. And with the mindset of building a career, I thought very much about that influence that growing up had on me. And but partly it was driven by a father as a college professor. who's a professor of linguistics. and His magic was the ability to bring his subject matter to life. And I never forgot the way that he did that and the way that it made me feel as a pupil, as a son. And I wanted to be able to bring that into whatever my career decision would have been at the time that I recognized what was happening here, how grateful I am to have been raised by someone who helped me to understand the appreciation of teaching and of coaching by bringing your subject matter to life. Fast forward to years later, after college as a finance major in college, I had one goal. That was go to Wall Street. My second goal was to make my parents proud. And my third goal was to, to start myself on the road to financial independence. And so many, many years working at Bloomberg and BlackRock ultimately led me to do what I do now. As you mentioned at the introduction, I lead three professional lives. I'm an executive coach to many financial institutions. I'm a professional speaker, Do a lot of motivational speaking, and I'm a college professor. I teach in the Columbia Graduate School of Engineering, and I teach soft skills to people who come with very hard skills. So I'm also a mountaineer. I became a mountaineer later in my adult life and climbed a lot of mountains, and I use that mountaineering as a massive influence on me. As part of my teaching narrative, that mountaineering is difficult, it's challenging, it's hard. It takes a lot of grit and determination. That no matter how technically skilled you are when you seek to climb a mountain, it's not enough. Understanding you bring to every mountain climb a mindset. You bring a skill set. Mission in my life is to help my clients and my students transform, to climb their proverbial mountains, to do the things that are important to them because they're important to their constituents, and the most important element for my clients and my students is to learn to be a more compelling and powerful communicator. So, to answer the question as to who I am, I'm just a guy that is here to help people transform their lives,
0: I love it. And so, so obviously, you know, as a university student, I think it's everybody's dream to go to Wall Street, in our case, Bay Street, shout out. right? For good the point. Yeah,
1: right. <laughs> so, that's sorry, my sorry. American bias, No, sorry about that. <laughs> I recognize I'm in Canada. Bay Street, did I say Wall Street? It's Bay, Bay Street. Street, that's what I meant.
0: It's all good. <laughs> um, yeah, you know, it's, as a finance student myself, I sort of had that lingering. And, uh, you know, you get to that corporate world, what made you sort of want to, especially having, having been there for 25 years, to all of a sudden say, you know what, I'm going to quit this world. I'm gonna start my own thing, write my own book. How does that how does that happen for you?
1: I think part of that I think is the human spirit. I think it happens organically because I've seen it not just in myself, but in others like me. There gets to be a point in time, particularly when you've had you've been grateful for the success that you've had, you you go throughout each day recognizing that there is something bigger than me, that that you seek to you seek a life of significance, you seek a life of meaning. And in the Wall Street world, which is fast, very tactical, you're always working on the next deal, it has tremendous meaning in your 20s and your 30s because you got to feed your families, you're trying to buy a home. But it gets to be a certain and that never gets old, but you strive for more. And I think in my case, it it became vocational and, and it was driven my choice to do this was driven by by listening to Steve Jobs at the 2005 Stanford University commencement address. I'll never forget what he said. And he said, if you look in the mirror and you ask yourself, if this were the last day on earth, is what I'm about to do exactly what I want to do? And when the answer is no too many days in a row, And it's time for a change. And it hit me at a time where after 25 years of doing this, flying all over the world, working in the service of the success of my company, something hit me where I wanted to think differently about what it is I do. And and I answered that question, it's time for a change, driven by, I wonder if I could change what I do, but do that in the service of other people's success, what would I do? And where I really, my strengths were, I knew on Wall Street or Bay Street, I was surrounded by brilliant people. I was never going to outsmart them. It was just impossible, not in finance at least. So I had to figure out how to outsmart them another way, and that was by my communication skills. I guess I was pretty good at it, but I got better and better at it. But I recognized early on in my career that as I looked up to the people that I admired, What was it about them that I admired so much? And what I came to conclude that was the birth of what I do now is there was something I couldn't define, and it's called executive presence. And many of them that had this executive presence that I couldn't define, but I knew it when I saw it, it was really rooted on foundation of superior and exceptional communication skills. So as I saw these people in these high positions it became pretty apparent to me that the top jobs often go to the most compelling communicators. So I used that. Since no one was teaching it to me, I really took the initiative that if I'm going to be anything like them, I'm going to learn how to do that. So I started devouring books and, and taking different courses on my own to learn to be a better communicator, and I succeeded on the basis of that. So when I decided that I can do this in a professional setting, what could I do best? And I I came to the conclusion, I could help so many people who have been promoted on the strength of their technical competence. Perhaps I could be of service to them and help them to develop their career to become better, more compelling communicators. And if you look at the career growth of those that do really well, it's driven one, they have to be good at what they do, technical competence. But now, as the job expectations shift, as you, as you go higher up in your organization, people aren't doing the very thing that got them there. They're expected to communicate, to motivate, to inspire. They have to do job reviews. They have to speak to the press. There's all these other things that are rooted in communication skills, and, and let the others in the, in the organization do all that technical stuff. That's okay. That's how you build good organizations. So that led me to being able to teach, to inspire, to provoke others to, to improve their career prospects by improving their communication skills.
0: And so obviously your bread and butter is communication skills. No question. Someone listening to this right now is thinking to themselves, all right, Chuck, look, you've already inspired me. I want to improve my skills. What are some tangible steps someone can take right now to improve that type of aspect?
1: Well, the the first part you just touched on, George, is one, having the mindset that this is something that is critical to professional success, but I think also to their personal lives. When you become a better communicator, it transcends professions and personalities. It becomes a part of who you are, and I think it helps in all aspects of your life. Second thing is after the mindset, now you have to work on skill set. And I say this because there's three elements to success. Mindset, skill set, and performance. Those are the three pillars of how we succeed. We just talked about mindset. Skill set, now you have to learn how to be a better communicator. I wrote a book called A Climb to the Top, and the subtitle to that is Communication Tactics to Take Your Career to Heights. And I stated that part of that title is driven by the mountaineering narrative that I use. But I wrote that book because I felt there was a gap in the marketplace, where many of the books that were out there were either complicated, they were too theoretical. I sought to write a book that was practically oriented, that had 10 commandments, called the 10 Commandments of Great Communicators, that had a very easy-to-follow format that help people to understand that if I follow each of these commands and I use them not just for giving a speech, but in everyday talk, pausing is one of them, which is what I just did, and I devoted an entire chapter to that, was to help people to understand that when you begin to practice these tactics, you will become a more compelling communicator that you will learn to speak in such a way that others want to listen and you will listen in such a way that others will want to speak to you because that is the essence of human connection. We speak, we listen. But when we listen to someone who is compelling, that's where we learn to be better communicators ourselves. So what I attempted to do in this book and climb to the top was simply to strip away a lot of the extraneous stuff and get right into those techniques. So I'd certainly recommend reading that, but also books. I'd recommend there's other books. There was a book written in the 1930s called How to Win Friends and Influence People. Yeah. That book, yeah. I make it required reading in my college. Awesome. And then I make required reading another book called Executive Presence. Mm-hmm. And in that book, it helps you to understand that that presence is driven by appearance, communication, and the intangible elements gravitas. What is the unknown, missing link between merit and success? It's that intangible that you recognize when you see it. You can't quite define it, but you know what it is. Mm -hmm. So I would say people should start immediately reading up on these things that would help them. And then they can always reach out to me. You can find me at chuckgarcia.com. I have a self-assessment on the web called the climb to the top.com. People take that. It's a it's a it's a review of your how you view your own communication tactics. It sends an email to me with the answers to that survey and allows me to communicate with you. I you know, focus on this chapter, this chapter, this technique, this technique. And I think it's it comes with making a commitment to. Singularly focus on this in a world that is constantly trying to draw people and distracting them to do other things. This deserves a singular
0: focus. So, so when, when we're saying executive presence, is this something that someone naturally has, or is this some something that someone develops? Obviously, there's only one CEO, chair, in companies, right? It's not meant for everybody. But someone looking at this right now, you know, they're they're sort of aspiring to be that. That next top executive, um, how how big is communication a part of this? And for, you know, for someone even at my age, you know, twenty three, almost twenty four. Yeah. What, what can they do? What can they do to actually get to that to that uh, stage? You bet.
1: It starts with the premise that the body speaks before the mouth even opens. Now let's think about what that says. Human beings form impressions about other human beings in 250 milliseconds. When I meet you at a networking event and we shake each other's hands and I look at you, my brain immediately has formed an impression. In fact, we form those impressions about each other faster than the blink of an eye. Why is that important? Because the first thing that I note about you is how you look to me before you've even said something. I don't know your pedigree. I don't know your background. I don't even know your name. But what I know is I'm looking at something and I've formed an impression, good or bad. So the executive presence, consequently, is what your message to the world is before you've even said a word. Why does that matter? And it matters a lot. Because I see many people, particularly in the finance profession, they either aren't dressed for the part, they haven't groomed themselves, just real basic stuff. And sometimes I scratch my head and said, I can't believe this guy walked into a meeting looking like that. Well, he just didn't he didn't give any thought. And that's my point. That executive presence is not something that just happens naturally. It's something that we, we my recommendation to, Everyone, you, George, or anyone that's listening, be conscious of what you're saying before you've even said anything and that comes through your visual look. We are profoundly influenced by the visuals around us. We live in a very visual-oriented world. So the question is, how do you want to look? And we ask ourselves that when you walk into a room you are being assessed on three things. The first one is your bearing. How do you look? Do you look confident? Do you look miserable? People okay, are going to form that conclusion. Second thing are your words. How are you speaking? And then the third is the manner by which you engage people. So if you walk into a meeting and you fall asleep, that's engaged. It's not a good one, but I've been in many meetings where I've been <laughs> tempted to fall asleep. That's really not what you. The opposite of that is how do you engage people in a meeting so that you are seeking maximum contribution? That's the manner by which you engage. Executive presence is noted by the integration of those three things. your bearing your words, the manner by which you engage. It's what politicians are very conscious of. They want how, how do they engage the people who they want to vote for them? That's an engagement. So this executive presence is something that should be conscious in your mind. You should read about it and think about the style that you wish to develop that ultimately becomes your personal brand. It does not happen naturally. The reason we go to school is that we are taught a lot of things. This is now. Since you know, you're not going to a class called this, and it's a shame you should have them, but now you should think about how do you learn this stuff when no one is teaching it to you? It will give you strategic and tactical advantage over those who are neglecting this.
0: Is it difficult? You know, in today's age, obviously with the advent of social media, very transparent economy today, uh, and, and people have hobbies outside of the corporate world. You know, I'm sure. one myself. Oh, sure, you know, that's good. Up, right? I mean, yeah. I mean, otherwise it makes us dull. That's right. You got to spice up your life yeah, for sure. But Chuck, I want to ask you this. Say, for example, my hobby is stand-up. Yeah. Say I sing on the side. Cool. Okay? And I still want to maintain that executive presence. Right. I still want to get to that executive seat at Certainly. one point. Yeah,
1: you all bet. Right?
0: How can you balance both, all right, while still being professional?
1: Hmm. Well, they're not mutually exclusive. You, you, you have a few different identities. Particularly as a stand-up comic, you, you are doing very much in this art of improvisation what it is we do in business. Mm-hmm. Business is one big Act improvisation. <laughs> no different than if you had scripted into a play and you forgot what it is you're supposed to say, you start to improv. Right. When we watch Saturday Night Live, what do we watch? The masters of improvisation. They came out of the second city. And I teach a lot of that. So I teach the art of improvisation because it, it, it's critical that you do it well. But I don't think what you're suggesting, George, is mutually exclusive. In fact, I think they help each other. I think the better that you get at stand-up comedy and, and, and as a musician because you're performing, in your executive world, you're doing the same thing. The only difference is your look might be different. Mm. You know, you're going to come in here in a jacket and a suit, and you do you stand-up comedy. You, you're appropriate to the task. You're going to be in jeans and, and, and a button-down shirt, or however you choose to dress. In fact, I don't see them as being all that dissimilar. It's just the same. I mean, they think about you watch a TED talk. Right. Um, I coach people for TED talks, and, and even some of the Wall Street people that I coach for TED talks, they're not walking into the TED talk on a, in a suit. That's just not their thing. It's a context. It's situational awareness. There's an expectation that you're going to bring a different identity. You're not bringing a different identity. You're simply adjusting to the situational context Mm -hmm. of what Ted asks you to do. It has a more modern look. It has a cool factor. So it's cool to just be in a sports jacket and not a suit and cufflinks because you don't want to be perceived as a guy that came out of the 60s. Okay, well, that's the way that they perceive it because they want to bring a modern spin to it. I don't see that different than what you do in improv. Mm-hmm. You bring your corporate world into your improv because I think there's a lot of funny things you could do. It just might look a little bit differently, but don't be a different person. Very true. You know, you, you, your authenticity has to work in both places. and Why should you be any different?
0: Right, and we talk about when you're when you're actually speaking or communicating. Uh, you know, I, I've learned over the time to find your voice. You know, everybody has their voice yeah. and in fact, I actually pull in that sort of uh, comic sort of feel to, to my public speaking right. and so I, I kind of resonate with that with that message. One of the questions I think people are sort of itching to know about now is fear, right? Uh, sure. One that's always attached it's to communication. It's a big one, yeah. It's a very big one. It is. How do you handle it? What's your take on it? What should people yeah. do?
1: Well, my take on it is when if you don't our, – our fears, if not confronted, become our limits. I cannot emphasize that like enough. That. that by the very fact that if you choose to ignore your fears, you have immediately designed your limits, and you're not going to go any further than that. So public speaking – and Jerry Seinfeld, is, is in the Art of Improvisation, he, he said something I included in my book. He said, at least in America, the number one fear to Americans is public speaking. He paused for dramatic effect. Death is number two, which he said at a funeral, the average person would rather be in the casket than delivering the eulogy. Now, sometimes that what he said people laugh because they know it's Seinfeld and he can't <laughs> not be funny. He's a funny guy. But people don't find that as funny. It, it, it is actually it prompts them to recognize, my goodness, maybe that's a part of me. And then if they don't confront the fears, or before I say that, here's what people Number one fear is people fear failure. If they're afraid that if they get up there and you, George, doing the act of improv, you are confronting the fear. Because I know there are days you're going to make them laugh, and there are days where it seems like an eternity and they're not laughing at all. But you approach it from sometimes you win, sometimes you learn. Every time that you get crickets, you're learning something didn't go right, and you got to with just Fear of failure, fear of being judged, fear of being wrong. If we don't confront those fears, then if they become our limits, we inhibit or limit our growth. The growth comes in the discomfort, and the discomfort comes when we confront our fears. That is a good thing. And there's an old expression from the Chinese philosopher who said when I let go of what I am only then can I become the person I aspire to be. Letting go of who we are comes from the confrontation of those fears because if we don't confront them, we don't change into the person we aspire to be. We stay right where we are. That's a lousy way to go about your life.
0: So as part of that Keeps you know with fear you sort of mentioned sort of stepping outside of it you know stepping outside of your comfort zone getting outside of that bubble, yeah. is that why you know you sort of took up mountaineering? It and, is right. Amazing. So it's also a, a good exercise to actually pick a hobby that you know challenges to, to step outside that comfort zone.
1: I'm glad you mentioned that because that's a perfect parallel. But you know, a mountain climber by design is going to be inherent risk in what we do. I'm not saying we're reckless, and I'm not mountain climbing climbers. I've been on seven expeditions with tremendous guides. They are not. Not only are they not reckless, they're quite careful. Just people read the headlines about those who die, but there's a million people that are summiting mountains that are never going to make the news. The reason I did that is on 9-11, I lost a lot of friends, and on the anniversary of 9-11, uh, one year later, I stepped on the summit of Mountaineer, and I use that as an opportunity to to. to do something that I always meant to do, but always found an excuse not to. Finally, I said, Life is way too short. I'm going to go try something that I have no idea if I'm going to ever, ever be good at it. All I ever did was ski. I skied, so I was into winter sports. I've never scaled a big mountain, but I said, Now is my time to try. And I went out and I confronted my fear. And I stood on a mountaintop at Mount Rainier in the Cascade Mountains in Washington. And I said, My goodness, I've actually just confronted my fear. I brought that fear to and it, what, I, what I didn't realize is I unleashed the inner beast. I, I found something, oh my goodness, what else do I have? And I continued to climb additional, much more difficult mountains until I finally got too comfortable in my life where I, am, I have nothing to lose by trying something because there's no failure. There's only feedback. But what you're suggesting is you don't have to be a mountaineer to confront your fears, but you do, and you should, Choose the proverbial mountains of those things that cause fear. That's the reason you run to it. The firefighters run into the fire. They don't run away from it. The soldier runs into the fight. Nobody wants to be in a fire. Nobody wants to be in a battlefield. Those are scary things. Even climbing the mountains, some i have done. Scary. I just can't believe I did it. And I did it. And I got home. And I, and I was ready for the next one. But my recommendation is, if we are not willing to try something and fail, then we're not going to grow. And you at 23, 24, you're going to be somebody different at 30. That 30, though, how different is it going to be? If between now and then you have tried different things and they haven't gone well, that is better than being technically perfect at all these things. And by the time you're 30, yeah, looking great. Success should not be defined by the by, by not making mistakes. Success, I believe, should be defined by how many things you are willing to try and fail. And you ask yourself, what would I be willing to do if I could never fail? I I don't find that particularly comforting. I think we should, instead of limiting our challenge, we should set about the world to challenge our limits, to ask ourselves, how can I help exceed my own expectations? But more important, how can I help others to exceed their expectations? What I just described is something called the law of reciprocity, and it's what I learned in mountain climbing, it's what I learned in my corporate world. If you want to be successful, one of the ways to be successful is to help others climb their mountain because they're going to help you climb yours. And what you learn, George, in the art of improvisation, the second city, most important tenet of improv, all of us is better than any one of us. We help each other to make a skit in improvisation. This is called, called giving you a gift. Give you a gift of a line. You take that line, you give the gift back by adding the line in the improvisation. That's mountain climbing. That's career climbing. We are continually giving gifts to each other and we give these gifts back. And in improvisation, before you know it, you just built a one-minute scene. It's called co-creation. Mountain climbing is co-creation. Being a TMX, being in the corporate world, you are co-creating because you're, you're actually paid to do something that hasn't been done before. That's co-creation. That's improvisation.
0: Does that make sense? A oh, lot. I love. I love how. you I – mean, I was just gonna say this is a, sort of one of the few podcasts where I'm, I'm sort of like hypnotized. I feel like I'm, I'm trying to listen. Uh, I just want you to climb mountains and keep doing absorb it improv- your content while trying to think of the next question. So it's, I appreciate it's that. No, point. I do that too. And I, <laughs> yeah. No, that's cool. Like you know, a I'm, wizard. It's part man. of.
1: It's part of the fun. <laughs> just climb those mountains, George, and and that's actually, awesome. it's refreshing to hear that you do live the other life. I think it's important that we have that balance. But it's really cool to hear, particularly you do improvisation. I don't think there, I find doing improv scarier than climbing a mountain. Because you've got an expectation of people in the crowd who are sitting there and want to laugh. And there are some days I recognize it's just not going that way. But you do it anyway. That's awesome. I'm glad you do that.
0: Yeah, no, for sure. I, I mean, I love public speaking. As, as you said, it's, it's a skill that sort of, you just get better at it. Right. Now, one of the things, you know, and, and I realized within myself, and I, I do a lot of reflection, so I've tried to build up my EQ, right? right? Nowhere near perfect, but I just, I keep questioning, you know, what I like to do, what makes me happy. Right. I think you found that, you know, somewhat early on in your life, and thankfully so, and you realize your passion. For a lot of people watching this, they're saying, like, you know, I'm inspired now, I have the passion, I have the energy. How do I get to the point where I actually know who I am, what I'm good at, and, and how do I have sort of build up the courage to execute on what I'm what I'm capable of?
1: Yeah, no, that's 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 it's hard for any individual to figure out where that is because it hits people at different times in their lives. You know, sometimes it hits you early, sometimes late, and sometimes not at all. Unfortunately, but but usually mm-hmm. for those that it doesn't happen, it's because they're, they're they're not opening up their mind to failing. And the, the, the old expression, "Fall down nine, get up ten, that's the mark of success. I, 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 it's it's hard to generalize all i can say and you made the, the, the notion of Q. I think we're conditioned in our world certainly in the united states i don't think canada is that different whereas children they think that our success is driven by our report card and that we're defined by your gpa and how we score in the standardized tests maybe that's all well and good for a formula for success but it doesn't say much about a formula for happiness and in the end i think what we all strive for is you beings is to be happy. We, we are machines, but we, we're, we we feel first, we think second. And, and And if I could offer one other Chinese proverb, is that the longest journey we as human beings take is the 18 inches that separates our hearts from our minds. The reason I say that is our hearts and minds are in a constant tug of My heart of hearts tells me this, but my mind tells me that. You hear it all the time. In my heart, you know, blah, 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 all these expressions. Well, the heart trumps the mind every time. The problem is we've been conditioned in the educational system all about the mind. Because the mind is the thing that scores on a test. So how do you measure what's inside the heart? Well, that's what you mentioned about EQ, EQ, emotional intelligence. That's where we find our happiness. You could score perfectly on your SATs and on your GPA, that's your IQ, but what we seek, and I think the happiness, comes from the equilibrium between the intelligence, that's, it's, that's IQ, and the emotional intelligence, EQ, that we find the balance, the equilibrium between our mind and our heart. When you get onto that stage to do improv, it is all hard. You are putting it all out there. When you go into your job, there's a lot of IQ, because this is a finance empirical world. I would bet your happiness falls in different points on that scale at different times for different situations. We find the happiness in the balance Because so many people that I see, they're unhappy. Unhappiness is a symptom that they're out of balance. Look at the way God designed us. Two eyes, two hands, two legs We're balanced. We have our vital organs in between, but they are sitting somewhere in the middle that allows us to bring balance. Where does the unhappiness come? People are tilted. Too much IQ, too much EQ. We strive for balance just as you work at TMX in your day job. You find the balance by being the musicians musician and doing improv. Awesome. Great combination and integration of different skill sets, but they're very similar. I'm a I'm a I'm a husband, I'm a father, I've raised four wonderful children, I'm a distance runner, I'm a mountaineer. And the distance runner first that helped me with mountaineering. That's my balance. If all I did was work and made a billion dollars a year and I never scaled that mountain, I'd be miserable. I'd have more money in my checkbook, but that's not a secret of happiness. I hope I can encourage, inspire people to go find that mountain. Whatever that you found, George, is improv and music. You're climbing that mountain because you know you're going to strive to get better. I hope everyone finds a mountain. Maybe it's yoga, bicycling going to mars whatever that is that's where it comes from it's finding the balance between the two
0: i love that so much and I, in fact my next question was going to be what makes you happy but so so balance is what makes you happy what gets you out of bed in the morning
1: the recognition that i have an obligation and an honor every day to work in the service of someone else's success that's what i do there is no higher calling I'm not waking up every day to go figure out how to make a big machine more money. That's what I did. I did it for years. And I'm really glad I did. And I'm privileged. I did it. But now I'm at a different point where I align my passion and my purpose for a higher calling. I'm not doing missionary work. I'm not doing God's work. That's not me, but I'm helping others to be better at what they do. Does it get any better than that? Helping people to improve their careers, to improve their lives, that gets me up in the morning with tremendous passion because I know that on any given day, I'm going to go help somebody be better at what they do. What a privilege that is. There, there, there's there's not, a, not, not an ounce of drudgery. There's an old expression, if you love what you do, you don't work a day in your life. Sure. That, that's where I am in my life. But, what, what, but it's not about me. It's about me helping so many people do it better. That's the law of reciprocity. I'm their mountain guide now mm-hmm. because people have guided me. And now it's my it's my opportunity to be able to guide them. And what I hope as a leader, I don't want to build other followers. The job of the good leader is to develop leaders. Mm-hmm. And then they develop leaders. And if we're all leading, that's a wonderful thing. That gets me out of bed every day with tremendous aplomb, I hope.
0: I love the fire. Chuck, last thing, I usually do this with all my guests. You bet. One tip of advice. Uh, suggestion, idea, opinion, whatever it is you want to throw at us that you would give the audience, uh, you know, after closing this podcast, what, what's that one thing you, you sort of just leave them with? I'm
1: going to get back to the, this short discussion we had on fear. Okay. Confront the fear that will allow you to let go of who you are and to become the person. Even if you don't know what that is, you continually seek to be better at what you do. And the only way you're going to do that is to try and fail and recognize for the rest of our lives, from here on in, from this day forward, there is no failure. Everything that we do is meant to give us feedback, which is an opportunity to determine how to do what we do better. And I'll leave you with one last thing. It was the best piece of advice I ever received, and it didn't come from a businessman. It came from the poet, the historian named Maya Angela. And she said, when you meet people, people forget what you say. People may even forget what you do. But they will never forget how you make them feel. Go out every day conscious of how you make other people feel
0: and see what comes back to you. You'll find that what comes back to you can be extraordinary. I love it. Chuck Garcia, ladies and gentlemen, this is episode 11 of Let's Grab Coffee. Thanks so much, Chuck. Thank you. Jim I hope this was helpful me. for you. It was a pleasure. And uh, hopefully we'll collaborate on more stuff to come in the near future. Looking forward to. It. Cheers, everybody.